don't get ahead of yourself. These were the words that I remember hearing in eighth grade as one of two of our PE teachers had just given a whole lot of instructions about the section that we were in with physical education. There were several things that we had to do throughout the year that was a part of their curriculum, and one of them had to do with gymnastics. Along with the routines that we were learning was a balance beam. The balance beam was several feet, three, four feet off the ground. And our PE teacher divided the class, seventh and eighth grade up, and split us into different segments, different groups, collectively gave a long list of instructions about what to do, how to, how to walk, how to keep your balance, how to put one foot in front of the other and how not to get ahead of yourself, how not to, to get to the end and get trapped, but to be able to go to the very end. The one thing I remember is when you hit the end of the balance beam, you were supposed to go up onto your tippy toes, rotate all the way around, and I can't even do it on a whole stage, let alone a balance beam. <laughs> but they said, don't get distracted. Don't worry about everybody else around you. It's just you in that moment keeping your attention where it needs to be, keeping your focus where it needs to be. And in that moment, it's one foot in front of the other. If you do too much or go too fast, it's going to end poorly for you. Don't get ahead of yourself. So jumping up, I missed the very first instruction, which was take your socks off. (laughs) Not concerned with what the teacher had said, I was consumed by all of the other eighth grade Students, in particular girls, that were lining the balance beam waiting for their turn. And my goal, my objective, was to show them all how this was done. And so, as we lined up, I jumped first in line. I hopped up using the step stool that they gave you up onto the balance beam. With my socks on, I began rattling off step after step all the way to the end With a collective gasp, I turned, and as I did, my socks slipped. I'll spare you some of the details, but I will tell you this much. I never knew that a bag of peas was better for some things than others. Because just like every other junior high kid, I know I didn't like to eat peas, but I remember distinctly the feelings, plural, both physically and emotionally, of being locked up in the nurse's office with a bag of green peas covering my loins. <laughs> I'd gotten ahead of myself. I was so caught up with what other people around me were going to think about how I did this and wanting their attention, wanting them to be impressed with me and how fast I could do this and how well I could do this, that I I failed to not only hear but apply the instructions that were given to me. There were a lot of instructions that were given to every one of us collectively before we all took to the balance beam, not the least of which was don't get ahead of yourself. And I wonder How many of us, if we stop for a moment and think about those five words, if we think about that advice, and then if we were to scan the course of our lives, would look on with regret at the times that we got ahead of ourselves and for all of the wrong reasons. That's what we're going to discover together today as we investigate further 1 Samuel chapter 14, the life of 
Saul and his son, Jonathan. If you have your Bible with you this morning, can I encourage you to grab it now and turn to the Old Testament book of 1 Samuel chapter 14, beginning in verse 24, where we left off last week with my friend Icky. And if you don't have a Bible, I would encourage you to raise your hand this morning. We have ushers coming around the room right now. They would love to gift you a Bible that's yours to have and to keep. As you turn to 1 Samuel chapter 14, let me just bring us up to speed. We've been in a continuous study through the entire Old Testament book of 1 Samuel. It's a historical collection of the life of Samuel, the prophet, the priest, and the judge. And we're introduced to several key figures throughout the story. Saul being appointed the first king over the nation of Israel, where the the people have wanted to move away from a theocracy where God was their leader and into a democracy where they would follow humanity. They would follow the leadership of man. And why? Because they got ahead of themselves. Because they looked on with envy at all of the surrounding nations and how they operated and how they were led. And they wanted that for themselves. And so they were willing to forfeit God's leadership in their lives, succumbing to the pressures of the world so that they could look like everyone else. In 1 Samuel 8, we see the nation of Israel demanding of Samuel a king for themselves. God tells Samuel, give the people what they want. Give them the desires of their heart. And I want to tell you, I want to challenge you. In fact, I want to strongly warn you and encourage you to think about that. There are a number of times throughout the Old and New Testament where we see and we hear and we even experience that. Where the Bible says, give them the desires of their hearts. What would that look like in this moment, right now, if God were to grant you your wish? How would your marriage be different? How would your finances be different? How would your job be different? How would your life be different? And what motivates the desires of your hearts? These are things that we've got to wrestle with. Well, in this passage that we're going to study today, we have seen Saul's rise to leadership as the king over Israel. We're introduced to his son, Jonathan, and we see a vacillation in leadership styles, how they ebb and flow, but a vast difference between the ways in which Saul leads and Jonathan leads. I want to preface the message today with something that we're going to see over and over again. Saul is consumed with being a king over the people. And we're going to see that Jonathan is committed to being a servant of the people. Let me say that again. We're going to see that Saul is consumed with being a king over the people while his son Jonathan is committed to being a servant of the people. Today we pick up where my friend Icky left, left off last week. And if you weren't here or you didn't get a chance to see it, I would strongly encourage you to go back and watch the message from last week. A great challenge from Icky about the life of a child and his father and how Saul and Jonathan really didn't share a lot in common. And Jonathan was trying to do everything he could not to be like his father. Today, we're going to be challenged to consider as we read this historical narrative. We're going to be challenged to consider what it looks like to stop, to stop getting ahead of ourselves, to stop putting our dreams and desires in front of the things of God and others to stop being selfish with how we see the world. We're gonna be challenged to stop, to stop getting ahead of ourselves. Father, as we study your word together collectively today, I pray that as your word goes out, that it will not return void. 
Lord, I commit my time, I commit my voice, I commit my, my everything to you right now. Father, I've studied this text and I've labored over this text and I've read it and I've read it and I've read it. And the best that I can come up with is to just simply empty myself so that you will fill me, guide me, lead me and direct me into what you have for us today. I pray that we would hear your voice collectively as a congregation and that we would be ready to respond. Father, as we spend this time together in this text, bring to our minds those areas in our lives where we've gotten ahead of ourselves, where we've gotten ahead of you and help us to surrender our lives to you. Now may the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts be received as a gift, holy and pleasing to you. Amen. 1 Samuel 14, beginning in verse 24. Now the men of Israel were pressed to exhaustion that day because Saul had placed them under an oath saying, let a curse fall on anyone who eats before evening before I have full revenge on my enemies. There's a couple of things that we're going to unpack throughout this time together today. A majority of it's going to be up front. I want you to pay attention to the motivations of this king over Israel. And I want you to pay attention to what he's willing to do to get what he wants. And my question before we study is, what are you willing to do to get what you want? Where are you willing to step over people, around people, or through people? Where are you willing to avoid God altogether to get what you want? You see, what we're going to read is a king who knows the difference between right and wrong. Samuel, the prophet, the priest, and the judge, has spent an exhaustive amount of time with King Saul, preparing him to lead the nation of Israel. He's taught him what it means to honor the Lord. He's taught him what it looks like to follow God's leadership as he leads the nation of Israel. What we're going to read is not a man who doesn't know what he's supposed to do. It's not an absent-minded man. It's not a man who's forgetful. It's a man who relinquishes any relationship or religion to God in favor of his own power and prestige and prominence. He's going to do some of the most unthinkable things to get what he wants. He gets way out ahead of himself. There are going to be times where we study this text together today where it feels like, it almost seems like he's starting to do the right thing. Now the men of Israel were pressed to exhaustion that day. They had been at war. They had been battling the Philistine army. And the reason that they were pressed to exhaustion that day is because Saul had placed them under an oath. This is a very pagan thing to do. And the oath was this, let a curse fall on anyone who eats before evening. In other words, we're going to fast all day long before I have full revenge on my enemies. And so no one ate anything at all. We're going to learn a little bit about fasting today. But I think it's imperative for us to understand that what Saul is doing here isn't to benefit his relationship with Yahweh. He's not looking to grow in his commitment to God. What he's trying to do is manipulate God into bending his will for the ways of Saul. He's literally trying to convince God that if, if he does this, then God owes him this. And so what seems to be a good thing, fasting, as Christians, or even those of you who are here this morning that may not yet have committed your life to Christ, you probably all are familiar with fasting. It's the act of withstanding or withstanding or withholding something from your body and almost exclusively food. We see that throughout the scriptures. 
But the question here is not what he's doing, but why he's doing it. He's doing it to manipulate God or an attempt to manipulate God. And he's willing to do that. He's willing to, to attempt to manipulate God at the cost of several other people's lives. So these men are going to war. They have no food. They have no nourishment. They have nothing except this oath that Saul has placed upon them. He has supernaturally imposed it upon them. Let a curse fall on anyone who eats before evening, before I have full revenge on my enemies. So no one ate at all that day. Have you ever made a decision that you later regretted based on emotions? Just me? And the, the tragic part of that story is I'm an emotional leader. So one of the things I've had to do is I've had to learn to put people in my life that will temper me. I'll give you four right now. Her name is Stacy and Kevin, well, his name is Kevin and, and Mark and Dane. These are four people in my life that God has given me to temper me because I tend to, I tend to react. I tend to overreact sometimes. And sometimes at the at the cost of others. And I know it's true of each and every one of us that if we act out of our emotions, excusing or dismissing logic or faith altogether, it most certainly almost always ends with a consequence or a negative outcome. Saul hasn't eaten anything. Have any of you ever made a bad decision when you were hungry? Are any of you married to somebody who has indecision when it comes to eating? I'm starving, just pick. I don't care where we go. All right, great, we're going to go to Chipotle. Oh, I don't really like Chipotle. Oh, you need Jesus. <laughs> My wife said those words to me last month. She said, you know, I think we've eaten Chipotle so much, I just don't really care for it anymore. And I said, God, help you. <laughs> when, we, <laughs> when we make emotional decisions, it costs us more than we bargained for. The emotion involved here is rage, it's anger, it's fury, it's prominence, it's power. There's so many motivating factors here that Saul is being completely irrational. His sole goal is to annihilate the Philistines. And not because he wants to honor God, but because he wants to be seen as more powerful and more prominent, of having more land, of doing more than any other king has done in that time. And because of his lust for power and position, He's willing to compromise at his core. He's willing to compromise at his core. And so he tells them, look, we're hungry, but you guys are going to keep being hungry. We're not going to eat until, until my revenge has been complete or is realized completely on my enemies. So no one ate anything at all that day. Verse 25, even though they had all found honeycomb on the ground in the forest, they didn't dare touch the honey because they all feared the oath that they had taken. Now, there's two things I want to touch on quickly here. One is fear and the other is the honey. Fear. We're going to see fear presented twice here in this text. One is fear of man. Two is lack of fear of God. One is fear of man and the second is lack of fear of God. But back up for just a moment and talk about honey. They're in the middle of a forest. And as these military men are coming through the forest. They're famished. They're hungry. There's nothing that they can do beyond what they've already done. And there on the ground is this honey. We see over and over again how God provides supernaturally for the people. But because of an oath that they received, that they picked up, that Saul put down, they couldn't even step into the supernatural blessing that God had for them. They were so caught up in humanity 
that they were unable to step into the sovereignty. Let me say that again and make sure we understand this. They were so caught up in humanity that they forfeit their ability to step into God's sovereignty. Where are you caught up with the things of this world, with the lusts of your own heart, with your own desires that are keeping you from stepping into the sovereignty of God, God's provision. This is a miracle. This is supernatural provision. And we see that that God provides for the nation of Israel like this over and over and over and over again for decades. God provides for the Israelites as they're wandering around in the wilderness with manna, which means what is it from heaven and water that will pour out from rocks and with birds. He, He provides these supernatural means by miraculous measures to provide for the needs of the Israelites. But in this instance, because they're so consumed with humanity, they're unable to experience the fullness of God's sovereignty. Verse 27, but Jonathan had not heard his father's command and he dipped the end of a stick into a piece of honeycomb and he ate the honey. And after he had eaten it, he felt refreshed. Why do you think it, why do you think it is that Jonathan hadn't heard his father's command? Just pause for a minute and ask, why? Because he wasn't there. He was fighting. He was at war. He was doing his father's bidding. He was being a good soldier and a good son. He wasn't there to hear or receive the command that his father had given the army. And this is another example of this paradigm between a a man and Saul who was so consumed with being king over the people and his son Jonathan who was committed to being a servant of the people. Saul sat at a healthy distance away from the battle, away from the wars, away from the fierce fighting and he just barked out commands and orders Well, Jonathan was the one fighting. He didn't even hear, he didn't have a chance to respond to his father's commission over them. Verse 28, but one of the men saw him and he said, your father made the army take a strict oath that anyone who eats food today will be cursed. That's why nobody's eating. That's why everybody's weary and faint. Look at verse 29. Jonathan said, my father has made trouble for us all. A command like that only hurts us. I mean, see how refreshed I am now that I've eaten this little bit of honey? And that the men had been allowed to eat freely from the food they found among our enemies. Think how many more Philistines we could have killed. One of the things about hindsight is that we can look back over the course of our lives and see how things turned out and what we might have done differently. This is a moment in the historical time of Israel where I can just imagine the story in Judges chapter 11 about a man named Jephthah who had favor in God's eyes, who was going to war, but it wasn't enough. He wanted more. He wanted more victories. He wanted more power. He wanted more recognition. And he stares after giving a command to his soldiers, he stares on across the city and he says, while looking at his own house, if God will be with me, if God will grant me the desires of my heart, and if I can have greater victories and more prominence and more power, then I commit that the first thing that comes out of my house, I will sacrifice to the Lord. I will kill before God and give it up as an offering. 
Jephthah's army goes along with him to battle and they're victorious. And they come back. Again, this man trying to manipulate the outcome of this moment as the cries of victory are resounding throughout the city streets, Jephthah with his mighty army come back in and the first thing that he sees coming through the doorway of his house is his daughter, his only daughter. If it were me, I would be praying that it was a cat. (laughs) It's his only daughter and he says, daughter, what have you done to bring me this low She said, tell me what you mean, dad. And he says, I made this oath. I made this oath. God didn't make me make this oath. I made this oath. You see, Proverbs 18 is really clear about the words that we use, that our words literally have the power of life and death. And so we need to be careful about the things that cross our lips, the things that come out of our mouths, the commitments we make. In fact, Jesus touches on this in the New Testament in one of his sermons where he says, look, let your yes be yes and your no be no. Be a, be a person, a man and a woman of integrity. Be cautious and careful about what you say. We also read in Proverbs that it's better to be quiet and let them think you're stupid than to open your mouth and prove them right every time. <laughs> and in this moment, Jonathan is looking at this decision that he didn't have anything to do with. It was something that his father had superimposed uh, on them. And he says, what has my father done? Look at the trouble he's brought. Didn't he learn a lesson from our ancestors like Jephthah who made a silly oath trying to manipulate God and it didn't turn out for, for him. And here we are. But just think, we've already had all these victories and if we were able to be nourished by food, how much more victorious would we have been? Verse 31. The, the army Saul's army chased and killed the Philistines all day from Michmash to Ajalon, growing more and more faint. That evening they rushed for the battle plunder and butchered the sheep, goats, cattle, and calves, but they ate them without draining the blood. I want to talk about this in just a moment. Verse 33, someone reported to Saul, look, the men are sinning against the Lord by eating meat, by eating meat that still has blood in it. If you turn in your Bibles to Leviticus chapter 17, go to your left. This is not going to come up on the screen, so you're either going to want to write it down and go back and look at it later, or you're going to want to turn here now. Leviticus, if you start at the beginning of your Bible, there's Genesis and then Exodus and then Leviticus. We're in chapter 17, beginning in verse 10. This is the Levitical law. This is the rule that God has given the nation of Israel to establish the boundaries and the parameters of their relationship where God says, I will be among you. I will be your God and you will be my people. And, and remember that the nation of Israel has agreed to these terms. It's a conditional covenant. Along the 613 rules and regulations is this one, verse 10. And if any native Israelite or foreign living among us eats or drinks blood in any form, I will turn against that person and cut him off from the community of your people. For the life of the body is in its blood. I have given you the blood of the altar to purify you, making you right with the Lord. It is the blood given in exchange for a life that makes purification possible. That is why I've said to the people of Israel, you must never eat or drink blood, neither you nor the foreigners living among you. Now this is incredible what we read. This passage is a foretelling of the final and ultimate atonement, the blood sacrifice. 
where Jesus will give his blood once and for all, for all. Now there's two reasons at least why God has established these parameters with the nation of Israel and has told them, instructed them, don't eat animals with blood still in it. Number one, and we read it, it's considered the life source. By draining the blood, we recognize that God is our life source. It's a sacrifice. It's a blood offering to say, God, we recognize that you are our sustenance. You are our strength. You are our life source. It is because of you, by you, in you, and through you that we have life. And the second is an atonement. There are a lot of different offerings and sacrifices, but there was only one, there was only one atonement for sin. And that was through the blood of animals. And so God established this holy ordinance with the nation of Israel. But because the people were so consumed in their flesh, they were willing to forfeit obedience to the Father. When, when you and I are so consumed with the things that we desire, with the things that we long for, how quickly are we willing to forfeit obedience to the Father? Even if we know it to be true, even if we've agreed upon it, there are so many examples in our lives where we know right from wrong and yet we're willing to sacrifice and forfeit all in the name of appeasing our own pleasures. The nation, they've been at war. And it's not, it's not the eating that's the problem. The oath only lasted that day. At nightfall, the nation of Israel was again permitted. These men that were fighting on behalf of Saul were permitted to eat. But it was how they went to the table. They went and they gathered up all the, all the plunder, all the, all, the, all the bounty. They took all these animals from themselves and they just right there on the spot began to cut them open and eat them right there in that moment. And someone with sense stepped back and said, what are they doing? They're sinning against the Lord. It says here in the second part of verse 35. So that night all the troops brought their animals and slaughtered them there. Then Saul built an altar to the Lord. It was the first altar he had built to the Lord. You see, I think that it's imperative here to look at how Saul responds. He hears what the people are saying and he responds to the pressure. They come to Saul and they say, look at these people, they're sinning against the Lord. Saul, with eyes of his own, can see what they're doing and he doesn't have the wherewithal to stop them until somebody comes and says, hey, this is wrong. And he says, oh, yeah, yeah, absolutely, you're wrong. This is a sin against the Lord. Stop it. What are you doing? And instead of turning to the Lord for restoration and reconciliation, he attempts to mitigate this problem on his own. He said, look, here's what I want you to do. All of you bring all of the animals to me. And I'm going to build an altar. And it's the first time he's actually built an altar. And there on that altar that Saul builds, they sacrifice these animals. Question for you. Who's responsible for the sacrifice? The priest. The priest. Saul was so consumed with what people thought about him that he was willing to step over, step on, step around anyone and anything that got in his way from realizing the prominence that he desired in his life. Dismisses the Lord, 
dismisses the priests until somebody comes and says, shouldn't we do this differently? He says, oh yeah, of course, of course. Verse 36, then Saul said, let's chase the Philistines all night and plunder them until sunrise. Let's destroy every last one of them. And his men looked on and they replied, we'll do whatever you think is best. Here again is an example of the motivations of this man's heart. No rest, no go home and enjoy time with your family, no Sabbath, no sit and recover. It was, look, now that you've eaten, now that you're done whining and you got a little bit of food in your bellies, let's go back to making a massacre of these Philistines so that I can further establish my boundaries and my territory and my power and my position. Again, he's willing to sacrifice everyone else for his own benefit. And he gets ahead of himself. And his men, for fear of what Saul will do to them, they look on and they say, whatever you think is best is what we're gonna do. I think it's ironic that they're afraid of Saul and his oath, but they've lost sight of the fear of the Lord. They're consumed, each and every one of them, with life. Think about it. With their own lives, with the lives of the Philistines and taking their lives, with how to benefit their own lives, that they're living in fear of what humanity will think about them. And they've all together collectively dismissed what God thinks about them. They get way ahead of themselves, except one. But the priest said, let's ask God first. The priest is standing there among them. And the priest looks over at Saul and he says, let's ask God first. Let's remember our roots. And so Saul, well, yeah, that's what I meant. Of course, we're going to go to battle and we need to pray first. Yeah, it's a good idea. We're going to ask God first. And so he asked God, after he's already been in battle, after he's already gone way ahead of himself, after he's already sacrificed so many and so much, after the train has already left the station, now he's encouraged to pray and he says, should we, uh, Lord, should, should we go after the Philistines? Will you help us defeat them? But God made no reply that day. How many of us I remember growing up, my mom loved Thomas Kincaid paintings. And every year, my dad would get her a large Thomas Kincaid painting with a calendar, large enough that she could fill in different dates. Now, I'm one of six, three boys and three girls, and we were a very active family. And my mother began to color code our calendar with all the events of the things that we had going on. Anybody else in here do that? Anybody else? It was, it was just a huge organizer up on the calendar, up on the refrigerator. And so you could walk in at any time. I mean, down to the meal, who was cooking and what they were cooking, who had dishes that day, who had chores, all of it was all laid out on this calendar. Our vacations were planned out on this calendar. It was the master calendar. Everything ran through this master calendar. But I never remember a moment in time where I thought to myself, man, this is, in my own life, as, as, I, as I plan out my days, 
I don't remember a time in my life where I remember to put the Lord first. I make all my plans. I'll plan out in advance the things I want to do. And then like many of us, I'll go back and then I'll ask the Lord to bless. Not lead, but bless. I'm not looking for God's leadership. I've already got the plan. Lord, I just need you to bless what I want to do. And that is what, that's what Saul's doing here. He's not looking for the Lord's leadership. He just wants to know if God's going to bless the plans and the desires of his heart. But imagine the, the sheer concern and frustration and dismay as he cries out to the Lord because the, the priest has encouraged him to pray and he hears nothing. So he does it again. Rather than being still before the Lord, he gets way out ahead of himself and he's gonna make another oath. He's gonna superimpose something else that is other than what God has for the people. Verse 38, then Saul said to the leader, something's wrong. I want all my army commanders to come here. And we're gonna find out what sin was committed today. Now here's this second vow. Here's the second oath. I vow by the name of the Lord who rescued Israel that the sinner will surely die, even, it is, even if it is my own son, Jonathan. Notice who's not mentioned in this. We're gonna bring all the commanders, including my son, Jonathan. And whichever one of you idiots has messed this up for me, you're dead. Even if it's my own son, Jonathan, if you get in the way of where I want to go, I will take you out. I will stop at nothing to get what I want. But there's no pause. There's no reflection. There's no introspection. He doesn't even give a, give, give a hint that there could be culpability on his part. He makes this oath. He superimposes this extra biblical, extra godly mandate on them. And he says, if anybody here has sinned, I vow by the name of our Lord who rescued Israel that the sinner will surely die, even if it is my own son, Jonathan. You know what I want to read again, and I just want us to pay attention to this. Read this with me, verse 39. I vow by the name of the Lord who rescued Israel that the sinner will surely die, even if it is my own son, Jonathan. How, how amazing is it that this man uses this pious prayer? He's disguising his own personal agenda with religion. Do you see that? He changes his tone. And now he's standing up there with pomp and circumstance before everyone. And I vow to you before the Lord, the God of Israel. He's using priestly language to disguise what is otherwise disgrace. Do you know where else we see this? In the church today. I'm gonna give you a very practical example. Do you know that we disguise gossip with prayer? Did you hear? Did you hear about Andrew and what he did yesterday? He had the audacity to show up at the church with a one-ton Chevy truck. <laughs> let's, let's, let's pray for him. God bless him. That happened, by the way. And I did ridicule him for it, by the way. And that, that's, just, that's just a silly example. But if I were to exaggerate it, or maybe not so much, and we were to stop and pause and look at how often do we take the opportunity to disguise gossip with religion? Where we talk about other people and other places, other churches, other, other political parties, other people we work with, 
The way other people spend their time, the way they spend their money, the way they treat other people, we will talk about anything and everything as long as we disguise it with religion. We think that it's okay. We're relinquished of any responsibility. We can say whatever we want. Oh, Lord, we just want to, we just want to pray for him. We've got to be really careful. It says that no one would tell King Saul what the trouble was. Then Saul said, Jonathan and I are going to stand over here, verse 40, and you stand over there. And the people responded to Saul, whatever you think is best. Then Saul prayed, oh Lord, God of Israel, please show us who is guilty and who is innocent. Then they cast sacred lots. And Jonathan and Saul were chosen as the guilty ones. And the people were declared innocent. And then Saul said, now cast lots again and choose between me and Jonathan. And Jonathan was shown to be the guilty one. And looking at his son, he says, tell me what you've done. Saul demanded of Jonathan. I tasted a little honey, Jonathan admitted. It was only a little bit on the end of a stick. Does that deserve death? Yes, Jonathan, Saul said, you must die. May God strike me and even kill me if you do not die for this. He's willing to sacrifice his own son to save face. He's willing to sacrifice his own son to save face. He doesn't bother to examine the cause of this crisis. He doesn't say, hey, Jonathan, did you get the memo? Were you aware of this oath that I had, that I had given over the nation of Israel? What happened? Help me understand this. All he knows is that at that time, his commanding officers and the army and the nation of Israel is looking on at Saul. And Saul has made an oath. He has declared that if anybody, if anybody doesn't do these things, I'm telling you, they're going to die. Even if it's my own son, Jonathan. He sacrifices his own son to save face. Have you ever done that? Have you ever sacrificed your sons and daughters to save face? I have. I sacrificed my children on the altar of work. Where my kids needed my attention. But I was so caught up in the things that I was doing that apparently I didn't think could run or happen or take place without me that I sacrificed a lot of time with my kids. I've sacrificed my kids on the altar of reputation. Have you ever done that? I was more concerned about what other people thought about me than how my children saw me. I've sacrificed my children on a lot of altars to save face. Now, I'm not proud of it, but I've done it. What altars? What altars are you sacrificing those closest to you on in order to save face? 
the corporate ladder. That's one that I've heard through 24 years of ministry. Well, you don't understand. I, I have to do this. I'm doing this so that I can provide for my family. I'm doing this so that my family will have a better life than I had. Do you know what I've never heard my six-year-old daughter, Brianne, say to me? Dad, I wish we had a bigger house. Do you know what I've never heard my six-year-old daughter say to me? Dad, I wish we went on better vacations. Do you know what I've never heard my six-year-old daughter say to me? Dad, I wish we drove better cars. But do you know what I have heard my six-year-old daughter say? Daddy, will you come play Barbies with me? I can superimpose my fleshly desires on my family and say, well, I'm doing this for you. I'm doing this because I'm leaving a legacy, a better life for you. I want something better for you, something more for you. But if you investigate the lives that you live with your children, I'm willing to bet just about anything on this one thing. What they want is more of you, not what you want. Stacy, the last time we went on a trip to Minnesota, we stayed at a hotel and we crammed all seven of us into a hotel room. You know what I loved about that? Was there wasn't any complaining about how small the hotel room was. Everybody was in the same space. And my wife said, you know, I think there are some days where we could, we could make this work. We could live in 400 square feet. By the next morning, that tone changes, I promise you. <laughs> but what I find ironic is in our house, we have off of our kitchen, we've got this um, sun, sun, sunroom, sun, what do you call it? Screened in porch, screened in sunroom. It's the smallest room in our entire house. Literally the smallest room in our entire house outside the, the bathrooms. It would be awkward if we all hung out in the bathrooms together. <laughs> and that's where we spend most of our time together. And my kids have never said, Dad, I just wish I had. <laughs> when, we, when we go to the, get shoes for my, my kids, my younger kids have never said, well, Dad, I can't, I can't wear those. Those aren't Nike. Those aren't Adidas. I can't wear that. That's not polo. We sacrifice those that God has given us responsibility over for the desires of our heart. And so then we need to call into question the desires of our heart. Saul was willing to sacrifice his son, Jonathan, just to save face. I want to ask you something really sobering this morning. If at the end of the day, everything you have and do, literally everything that you have and everything that you do was stripped away from you and you were left in a room with your faith and your family, would that be enough? Or would you have an absolute crisis of identity? That's how the enemy gets to us. We live in a constant state of identity crisis. We need more, we want more, and we disguise it with trying to do better for others around us. I've heard people use this excuse. Uh, my son and I were just talking about this. We have a friend, and I'm, I praise God 
I praise God that he has blessed people with the ability to make money. If God has given you that ability, I pray that he will bless you tenfold with even more so that you can advance the kingdom's cause. My son made a point to me recently. We were talking about a family that we know in common. They have a 14,000 square foot house on 17 acres with a lake running through the backyard. And when they first met, when we first met them, the very first thing that they said to me after they found out that I was a pastor was, oh, we built this so we could do ministry. Do you know how many mouths you could feed with a multi-million dollar house overseas? I mean, I'm not indicting anyone. I don't know that they don't do ministry. That's not what I'm saying. But I promise you that the starving children all over the world are not looking on with envy saying, I wish I had a house like that that had warm tile on the bathroom floor and a heated toilet seat. What they would give for a bowl of rice and beans. Friends, we need to stop sacrificing ourselves and those that God has entrusted to us on the altar of selfishness and disguise it as godliness. All right, let's get through the rest of this together today. Verse 43, tell me what you've done, Saul demanded of Jonathan. I tasted this honey. Verse 44, yes, Jonathan, you kind of die. Verse 45, but the people broke in and said to Saul, Jonathan has won this great victory for Israel. Should he die? Far from it. As surely as the Lord lives, not one hair on his head will be touched. For God helped me do a great, or helped him do a great deed today. So the people rescued Jonathan and he was not put to death. Saul is willing to be made a liar if it means that he holds the appeal of the people. He's not willing to compromise his own son's life or excuse me, or on his own son's life until people start speaking up. He's going to put his son to death because he wants to save faith, face. But the people speak up and they say, wait a minute. While you're over there busy trying to be a king over Israel, your son Jonathan was committed to serving Israel. And because of his valiant efforts, because of his bravery and his, his commitment to, Christ, or to, to God and to his, to his people, we have won many, many, many battles. How is it possible that you're going to put him to death? And Saul, he changes course. He is like, he, 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 James says, look, it's like being tossed and thrown about by the waves of the sea. It's like looking in a mirror and then walking away and forgetting what you look like. Saul literally is being blown about by the waves of people's opinions. There's nothing consistent in this man's life. Verse, verses 47 through 52, I'm going to encourage you to go read it. The remainder of this week, it's a chronology of Saul's wars and victories. Yesterday, after the parade, and can I just can I just take a minute and thank God for you? I didn't know much about Grand Marshal or what that represented in a parade, and I found out that our church, along with Adam and Stacy and Butch's Deli, were going to be honored as Grand Marshals in the parade. Because of your selfless giving, 12,777 or 76 lunches went out last year in the middle of 
the greatest crisis our country has seen in the last decade, right here in Blair, Nebraska. Lives that we don't even know are being touched because of your willingness to give yourselves away. Church, I wanna tell you that yesterday, I was reluctant to even walk in the parade. You ask Mark, our executive pastor, or Doolin, our outreach pastor, or Stacy, my wife, it was the 11th hour that I made the decision to walk. And not because I didn't wanna walk in the heat, I, I was excited, but I was so concerned that anybody would ever, ever, ever think that I wanted anyone to think that what we do is about me or about our church. It is all for the glory of God and him alone. Having said that, what a tremendous honor it is to receive a gift like that. And though there were just a few of us from this church represented, I wanna say thank you to all of you who make this ministry possible. Thank you. Thank you. Because of your radical generosity, we've got a counseling center that is changing lives. Because of your generosity, we're gonna have 200 kids and almost 100 volunteers next week for Vacation Bible School that will help people encounter Jesus and their lives will be changed. Because of your generosity, we're able to do outreach and give the Go Grill away. Last week, Passageway Church used it and they served over 150 families in our community. Praise God. So grateful to get to be the pastor of this church. I was riding the bike yesterday with my family. It was my wife, Stacy, and my two youngest daughters, MJ8 and Brienne6. All the other ones were at a youth group event. And as we're riding through Blair, we come toward the end of our ride, and MJ is ahead of everybody. And what I love is as she's coming up to this cross street, she looks back at me and she says, Daddy, is it safe to go? And she stops before she crosses the street. Yeah, I was back trying to help my, my little daughter, Brienne, keep on going. Her little tiny legs just don't work as, as fast as the rest of us. And so I was trying to encourage her. And as I rode up as fast as I could to get in front of MJ, there was a, a big SUV coming. And I stopped. I said, MJ, stop, stop, stop. And the SUV looked at us and he, he waved us on. And what I did was, what I try to do at every, every cross street is I put my bike positionally between the two streets at the crosswalk so that I'm, I'm, I'm a little bit bigger than my daughter, MJ. And I stand up on my bike and I, I, I wave my hand out to them and direct traffic, tell my kids, hurry up, come on, let's go. And then after they've all crossed the street, I waved at this man and I began to pedal with my daughters. And I just thought, this is a beautiful word picture for what we are called to do as followers of, of God. When we come across these cross sections of our lives where we've got to make a decision, how many of us in our haste and our excitement get ahead of ourselves and run the stoplight or, or run the street? We just ride right onto the street with, without, without concern for anybody or anything around us. We're just so consumed with where we want to go. And it could be for all the right reasons. We could have all the good intentions of the world. But we get ahead of ourselves and we end up in a predicament. We end up in a position that 
could cost us everything. And I just thought to myself, how, how many of us this morning need to be like my daughter MJ? How many of us need to come up on that street and just stop and ask this question, Daddy, is it okay for me to go? Daddy, is it okay that I go? I mean, have you ever made a bad decision in haste? Have you ever gotten ahead of yourself? Have you ever bought something that you know you shouldn't have bought and then after you were already under contract, you said, oh, shoot, we should pray about this. Hey, Daddy, should I buy that? How about relationships? Have any of you ever ended up in a relationship because they were just that good looking? And then you asked after the fact, Daddy, should I, should I be dating that person? How about at work? Have any of you ever quit a job or taken a job that you maybe knew after the fact that you shouldn't have done and it was too late and you said, God, is that something I should do? How many of us, we chase the desires of our hearts so fast that we end up in positions that we would never be in if we would just stop long enough to ask, Daddy, is it okay for me to go? I want you to turn in your Bibles to this proverb. There's actually two of them. Proverbs chapter three, verse five and six. Proverbs chapter three, verse five and six. I want to encourage everybody here this morning to memorize these two verses. These two verses will help us not get ahead of ourselves. Proverbs chapter three, verse five and six. Proverbs three, five and six. Here's what it says. Trust in the Lord with all your heart. Do not depend on your own understanding. Seek his will in all you do and he will show you which path to take. Trust in the Lord with all your heart. Do not depend on your own understanding. Seek his will in all you do and he will show you which path to take. Daddy, is it okay if I go? Daddy, is it safe for me to go? Or we'll come up on a, a street where we can either turn left or right. Daddy, which way do you want to go? Are we going left or are we going right? The Bible throughout the New Testament uses imagery of a child. And we are called to have childlike faith where we trust our father. And as I was, I was thinking about as my children, I've got two of them. My, my son who's going to be 18 in just a couple of months, he's in the drum cage and I'm looking at his life and he's just about to be an adult and I'm overcome with emotion this morning to the point where I can't even sing because I remember a time where he learned to walk and he let go of the table and what he would do is he would hold on to my fingers and he would trust me to lead him in the right direction. And I just got this image and I, I really, I felt compelled to say, God, I want that to be me. I want to reach up and I want to take hold of your hands and you lead me, God, lead me. Trust in the Lord with all of your heart. Lean not on your own understanding. In all of your ways, acknowledge him and he will make your path straight. What area of your life have you not surrendered to God? Where do you need to stop getting ahead of yourself? And it's not too late. It's not too late. You might be dealing with the ramifications of getting ahead of yourself. You might feel like you're waking up with a great big bag of green peas on you. But where in your life, in this moment, do you need to bow your heart and bend your knee and simply say, God, what do you want me to do? But the problem is some of us don't know what to do in the waiting. You know, we'll ask God and if we don't hear anything, 
but we'll just consider our options and we'll just run into the best option that we have committed to ourselves. Right? You know what I mean? Anybody else do that? I, I do that. I, but let me remind you of what Psalm 4610 says. Be still and know that I am God. I will be exalted among the nations. I will be exalted in the earth. There's a guy in the Old Testament, Daniel, who dealt with the same thing. God, I know they've got this crazy, this crazy law that says if I worship you, they're gonna kill me. They're gonna throw me into a den of lions. What do I do? And he didn't hear anything. So you know what he did? He kept on worshiping. And he ended up in this den. Can you imagine the conversation he had with the Lord then? Lord, I must've heard you wrong. I hate cats. Why am I in here with these big ones? But it was in that waiting that when the rock was pulled back and King Nebuchadnezzar called down, Daniel, son of the most high God, are you awake? And he says, long live the king forever. And he's pulled from the pit that his testimony of waiting on the Lord when he didn't know what to do changed the nation. Stop getting ahead of yourselves and surrender to the Lord. Trust in the Lord with all your heart and lean not on your own understanding in all your ways, in everything. Acknowledge God first and he will make your paths straight.